Stories Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Try now. Ben's voice was muffled. His entire upper body was inside the cupboard behind a cast-iron ancient bath. This, for some reason, is where the fuse box is. Nothing, I called back, flipping the bathroom light switch up and down fruitlessly. Okay, what about now? Shit! There was a jumble of clattering and curses, and then he emerged, slightly dusty, holding an ancient hockey stick in one hand. He looked at me expectantly, and I flipped the switch up and down again and shrugged. Must be a power cut, he said, tossing the hockey stick back into the cupboard. The wind is up. Maybe the lines have blown down or something. What should we do? I glanced at the weak light coming through the frosted panes in the front door. It was late December, and in the wilds of Scotland, that meant even during the hours of light, there often wasn't much light. Jump in the car, go and ask at the farm what Sandy suggests. Ben loved the farm. We'd moved out here to Smallhold. That was the idea. It wasn't much, not compared to Sandy's farm. He had a few hundred acres. We had a tiny croft adjoined with low stone byre, standing on six acres of questionable land. But it was the dream. Or at least it had been in the brochure. It was turning out that books really don't help as much with learning to farm as an actual farmer does. And that the whole affair, with its milk-fevered cows and foot-rotted sheep and pony that would sooner kick your teeth in as pull a plough, wasn't as romantic as we'd expected. Still, I reminded myself, life was like that sometimes. And things worth doing are usually hard. Ben went to the farm any excuse he got, and I was worried we'd wear our welcome thin. But Sandy, a weathered man aged somewhere between 40 and 78, seemed quietly proud to have a young man hanging off his every word. He had sons, but they weren't farmers. City boys, no, he'd said with a note of regret when I'd asked. Then he'd changed the subject. Our trusty old Land Rover took a few goes in the frosty cold air to cough into life, but soon we were jostling down the rutted tracks towards the farm, beyond which was the main road. Our croft lay at the bottom of a deep valley between mountains. The house and byre were one long, low building running north to south across the valley and facing the lock to the east, which gave the house its name. Grianya Madnie, Gaelic for morning sun. There was a little farm in front, a garden at the back, and three fields of varying size which climbed the slopes of the foothills to either side, hemmed in by ancient stone dikes. It had seemed rustic when we saw it in the estate agents, but now we understood it was more neglected. As we rolled onto Sandy's land, the dikes were replaced by stout modern fencing and steel five-bar gates. Our gates were all waterlogged wood on shonky hinges, we pulled into Sandy's yard, where he was leaning on a staff, his dog at his heel, as if he'd been expecting us. Power off? He asked, as we were still getting out of the Land Rover. Yes, you too. Aye, 
Sandy looked east towards our croft, which was hidden by the undulations of land, then back at us. Do we need to do anything? I asked, stepping over. Phone anyone or anything? You got a phone put in? Sandy tilted his head. No, still these. I took my mobile out and held it up. No use, Sandy said. Mass will be out too. I looked and saw. Indeed, I had no service. I looked at Ben, who checked his and shook his head. Seeing us reach into pockets, Sandy's collie, Flett, came slinking over to see if we had food. The landline is down too, Sandy said. But they'll notice soon enough. Any ideas how long? Ben scratched Flett's head absentmindedly, but the dog, disappointed by this inedible greeting, returned to Sandy's heel. Shortest about two hours, Sandy said thoughtfully. Longest was eight days. I let out a little involuntary moan at this. But that was long ago, Sandy said. I'm sure they'll be quicker these days. Well, we should get back. Ben turned to me. We should try and get everything done in the light while it lasts. Aye, it's a long night. Sandy stepped forward then, as if he had something to say. The longest, isn't it? I had noted it on the calendar that morning. It's the 21st, the shortest day. Aye. Sandy was squirming slightly, most unusual for this very self-contained man. It's a long night, and there could be things about. Things? Ben frowned. What sort of things? Wolves? No, son. There is no wolves anymore. No, these are other things. Maybe unpleasant things. Likely the lines keep them out. He nodded vaguely at the massive pylons which marched across the mountains halfway up, carrying the 400 kilovolt lines that took the power from Scotland's windmills to the national grid. If it stays off, they may come down. Oh, right. I had literally no idea what he was on about. This was the first time our conversations had ever strayed from the strictly practical. I know, lassie, he nodded slowly. You'll be wondering if Sandy hasn't had a bit too much early Christmas whiskey. I began to blush and raised a hand to protest, but he cut me off. Believe me, he said. I'd not be seeing it if I didn't have cause for concern. There are things in the mountains. Ancient things. They don't bother us, they stay up there. We leave them be. But sometimes, when the veil is thin and the power is out, well, don't be taking any visitors tonight. You hear? Visitors? Ben sounded as confused as I felt. Best be getting on. Sandy announced abruptly, and with that he turned on his heel and disappeared into his house, leaving us staring at his slamming door. On the way back up to the house, we decided Sandy was losing his marbles, which was really sad and also a bit frightening because we'd been hoping he'd help us with our upcoming lambing and calving season. The weather was rapidly getting colder and wilder, and once back at home, Ben went immediately to bring the cows and pony in. The sheep could stay out, unless there was three feet of snow, they'd be okay. 
I dug out the torches and batteries and the candles and tea lights and three old paraffin lamps, which I filled and primed. I set everything on the kitchen table. It was already dim inside the house. I looked at the clock. It was nearly 3pm and the sun would set in less than an hour. I grabbed some torches and hurried outside to see if I could help Ben. The buyer was the same size of the house, except that inside, instead of multiple rooms, it was a single space with two big bullpens and two loose boxes. A stout sliding door, which we had painted red, stood suspended between ancient iron runners at the front. One bullpen now contained three shaggy red highland cattle and one black heifer calf. The cows were munching contentedly on their straw bedding. In the loose box beside them, our highland pony Gretel stood with her large bottom swung towards us and her ears pinned sullenly to her neck. When we bought her, we thought she didn't like humans, but it turned out she didn't like anything. Animal, mineral, or even vegetable. She tore up grass as if she was enraged by it, and ate apples I sliced into her bucket, rolling her eyes as if I'd poisoned them. She did technically do the work we asked of her, but she made sure we knew just how she felt about it. Hi, Gretel. I called out over the wall of her box. In response, she clamped her tail down and ears back a little harder. Can I help? I asked Ben, who was forking hay into Gretel's hay rack. You can fill up their water, Ben called back. Only I don't know if the hose is frozen. I went to tap on the wall by the buyer shared with the house and turned it. No, it's fine, I said. And dragging the hose, I began to fill up the stone water troughs in the corners of the box and pen. On a whim, I filled the other one in the bullpen too. I thought I'd leave the sheep out, Ben said, seeing me. I just fill it in case, I said. If it gets really wild, you know they'll climb over the wall and put themselves to bed. Just as I was turning the tap off, I heard something. A sort of low wailing outside. Not the droning whistle of the wind, something else. I froze and looked at Ben, who, also frozen, was looking at me. The wailing got louder. I stepped closer to Ben, and when a great rattling at the door began, I grabbed his arm. Hello! Called a voice. And I realised with a flood of relief who it was. <laughs> Hillary! Ben shouted. You scared us. How are you? Come on in. I hurried towards the older woman who had forced the sliding buyer door open a few inches and was squeezing through. Her cheeks were red and her hair stuck out from her head in every direction. I was shouting. She laughed back. I came to see if you had birth. No, it's out. Sandy's too. And the phone masts. Ben put his pitchfork away and looked around the buyer. I'm all done. Shall we go inside? Get you a hot drink, Hilary? I can, stay, Hilary said. The sun won't wait, so I mustn't. I just came to warn you of the kayak. The Kali what? Ben's brow wrinkled. The kayak. The mother of Scotland. The winter queen. The old hag. Oh, is, is this tradition like a, a Celtic thing? I asked. Hillary lived further up the valley from Sandy on higher ground. Sandy had remarked in the past in response to some of Hillary's opinions that maybe the air was a bitty too thin up there. <laughs> Kilts! Oh, they are children compared to the kayak! Hillary snorted. She is 
thousands of years older than the kilts. Are you sure you'd not rather tell us over tea? I sidled towards the door, but Hilary, her face clouding and serious, caught me by the wrist, her fingers digging into my flesh. I am serious, she whispered. Listen, she is ancient and huge, and the power lines are dead, so there's nothing to stop her wandering down here to see what she can play with. Play with? The day was getting more and more surreal. Aye, she might freeze your animals or your blood. She might blow your house over. She's no a nice, friendly, modern-type deity. There's no reason to her. She's a force, you understand? Do not have dealings with her. Do you understand? But I... Do you understand? Hilary shook me by the wrist and Ben stepped in. Yes. He gently peeled her fingers from my arm. Yes, Hilary, we understand. We won't have any dealings with any winter queens. I'm sorry. Hilary looked at where I was rubbing my wrist. I had to warn you. That's your word. Then she pushed the door again, squeezed through the gap, and she was gone. For a long moment, neither of us spoke. Then... What the fuck? We said almost in unison. Outside, the last of the light was dying. So we set the torches up by the door, ready to be grabbed if need be, and hurried back into the house. Thankfully, the cooker was gas-fed, and by the time we'd made and eaten dinner and were sitting with our socked feet stretched out towards the fire, we decided it was a joke. A slightly crazy kind of elaborate joke to play on the English incomers on their first night of a midwinter power cut in their new home. <laughs> the locals had shown no antagonism at all towards our Englishness, but this was only cruel if you viewed it that way. By Hogmanay, we decided we'd be in Sandy's good room laughing about it. With that settled, we lay one each end on the sofa, a couple of candles and the glow of the peat fire lighting the space around us, and talked about the coming spring and all our hopes for it. The weather got worse and worse. We had no TV or data service to check the forecast, but we were both sure it would be a named storm. The wind howled down the valley and slammed into the back wall of the house rattling the windows in their frames and rifling the roof tiles, threatening to tear them away. Around eight, it started to rain too, but with the wind sideways. Sheets of water battered against the walls and windows, and the room seemed to grow a little colder. As he was putting more peat on the fire, Ben raised his head, tilted it. Did you hear that? Hear what? I sat up straighter, listening. Behind the storm, there was something more rhythmic, more regular. Banging, Ben said. Gretel. If the mare decided she no longer wanted to be stabled, she would try to kick the walls down. We went together. I lit a paraffin lantern and took it with me. Ben laughed at this. He knew I'd been itching to use them and grabbed a torch instead. With our jackets over our heads, we went and sprinted in for the buyer door. It was complete chaos. 
The cattle were galloping around the bullpen, the straw trampled and greasy under their hooves, their breath fogging the air above them. Gretel was standing with her head down, ears glued to her neck. She was blowing hard, her whole body was wet and curdled with sweat. Foam dripped from her fierce stretched lips. She was kicking out at the box walls over and over with both back feet. Fuck! What do, what do we do? I cried, but Ben didn't answer me. He was still standing, slightly in the open doorway, staring out. Slowly, he turned his head and I saw his face lit only by a flash of lightning. Eyes wide, mouth a shocked O of fear. His voice was shaking, but I heard what he said. Maya, there's someone out there. There was someone out there. I put my arm across my forehead, trying to keep the icy rain out of my eyes and squinted into the dark. Strobe lit by flashes of lightning. A hunched figure flailed in the mud of the field, sliding and wheeling as if trying to fight the storm. It was dressed in a grey cloak and waved a grey stick in one hand. The flashes of light were too brief to make anything out except this. They needed help. Hey! I yelled into the wind, pushing the buyer door wide so the dim light of our torches and lamp glowed into the night. Ben sounded annoyed, angry even. What are you doing? He grabbed my arm, but I wasn't listening. The figure was staggering our way now, then fell and began to half crawl. Tearing free from his grip, I ran out into the dark. I was quite close before I realized my mistake. The figure was at the yard gate when I was approaching, was pulling itself hand over hand up to the bars to standing as I reached the gate. The figure regained its feet and I found myself staring up, up and up into the black of the sky because it was more than double my height. I couldn't make out the face, buried in the folds of the hood, but whoever it was loomed over me and stepped over the gate as if I wasn't there. I staggered back, an involuntary squeal of fear escaping my throat. I slid myself then and fell hard on my ass in the freezing mud. I scrabbled backwards away from the figure, but it was still coming, leaning heavily on the stick, its back curved by age or deformity. It was heading for the buyer. Ben. Ben was in there. I turned and scrambled half on my hands and knees back towards the open door. I got there before the figure by a few seconds, just long enough to push Ben back hard into the empty loose box. Maya! He yelled. Then the figure was in the doorway. I stopped for a second and I held my breath. The light was dim in the byre but bright enough to see and be paralysed by fear. It had to duck to come in. The doorway was twelve feet high, tall enough to drive a tractor in, and it had to duck. It hovered there, its head bent. It put out a massive wizened hand and gripped the doorframe. The hand looked human except for its size. It was frail and blotchy like the hand of any person who'd been out in a storm might be. The thin skin stretched across the knuckles, blanched as the grip tightened, and the figure began to moan. It began low, like a tired groan, but it grew and grew louder and louder until the air was shaking and my lungs were vibrating with the earth-shaking roar of it. I put my hands over my ears and cowered against the bullpen wall, teeth chattering in fear. When the first war ended, the figure seemed to take a few deep breaths, 
and in the pause the mare kicked the door out of her box and bolted past the figure and away into the night. The next roar began louder and reached an even greater volume than the first. Midway through it, I registered the blur of the oldest cow smashing through her own pen door and the cattle going out the way Gretel had. I wished I was a creature who could just run. As the figure roared, so did the wind outside. It howled around the house, screaming along the roof ridges. Lightning and thunder flashed and crashed overhead. As the calf went past, the figure tapped it with the end of the stick. It's hard to describe what happened. It let out a very short yelp, the start of a ball that froze in its throat. It was leaping through the door as it touched it, and it seemed to stiffen but continued in its trajectory. When its forefeet hit the muddy cobbles of the yard a second later, the whole car shattered. Just shattered. Like a dry eye science experiment rose, only even redder. Shards of red and pink and white exploded away into the darkness. I was numb with shock. Had I just seen that? The roaring had stopped now, and the figure straightened up some. It came inside and slid the door closed behind it. Then it pushed the wet hood down, exposing its face, and I felt my bladder threatening to void. It was a female with a short, hooked nose and wide, crooked mouth. Straggly grey hair, ringleted by the rain, hung past the thin, hunched shoulders. It only had one eye. In the middle of its forehead, like a mythical cyclops or one of the poor infants I'd seen in my father's medical books as a nosy child. But those babies had been dead and this person was most definitely alive. It, she, surveyed the room and then began to hobble on her staff towards the unused bullpen. I looked at the doorframe where she had been clinging and saw a bloom of thick frost there. Then was shout whispering from his loose box. The creature spoke. She rolled her eye towards me, and then stretched out a hand, pointed at me almost gratefully. I wanted to fall on my knees in terror. Then the eye rolled towards Ben. The thing spat in disgust and raised the staff towards Ben. I don't know what got into me. I knew, even as I did it, that it was crazy too, but it was happening before I had time to think. I didn't even know how I'd remembered what that word meant. I ran, dashed between Ben and the menacing staff. No! I shouted. He's my Dinya. My man. The figure paused. Then the body began to curl over. The eye closed and the moaning began again. Outside, the weather began to worsen once more, battering rain, drumming on the door and the wind whistling through the gaps. 
over the beginnings, I shouted to Ben. Get out! Run! Come with me! He called back as he began to sidle along the wall towards the door. I can't! You heard her! She wants me! I urged him with frantic hand gestures to hurry. But, Maya! Ben! I cut across his pleading. Just go! I think she'll kill you if you stay and come after us if I leave. Go to the house, please! He went. Not as fast as I'd like, but he went. I trembled through the roaring, mind frantic with plans and contingencies, and when it was quiet again, I crept miserably towards the bullpen to attend to our guest. She had settled herself in the fresh straw, leaning back against the far wall. I willed myself to speak, but my mouth was dry with fright. My tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth. And I had nothing to say. My mind was a blank vista wiped clean by terror. But the creature spoke again. I risked a glance at her terrible face. Her eye, blue and pale as ice chips, regarded me inquiringly. Maya? She asked, then swept her cloak apart, and I saw. Her belly was huge, swollen and round. I began to put it together in my mind, and she began to moan again. She leaned forward, crossed her legs, sitting like a child at circle time. Then she put her staff across her thighs and gripped it with both gnarled hands and roared. Labour. She was in labour. But how? She looked about a thousand years old. But it was undeniable. I'd seen two of my sisters give birth and this was it. These sounds, these movements. I cursed my father at that moment. It was him who named me. Maya, an old Greek word for midwife. But I'm not a midwife. I'm an earth sciences grad. I write a blog about substance and small holding. How the hell am I going to deliver this... This... I didn't want to call her a monster in my mind, but I was struggling to find a better word. But even then, I knew I would have to. There was a certainty in me already that whatever was happening was going to, and I couldn't escape whatever my fate in it was going to be. That if I tried, she'd shatter me and Ben and maybe anyone else nearby. The roaring stopped again, and the eye opened once more. It seemed bluer now, less pale. Maybe it was the lights. Maybe the batteries were going in the torches. Ishka, she croaked. I thought I knew that one too. Water. I went to the trough and scooped half a metal pail of cold, clear water from it. I took it to her shuddering at her enormous hands. She took the bucket as if it was a mug and drained it in one gulp. She murmured, and I thought maybe I'd been thanked. She held out the bucket, and when I took it, it was so cold that for a moment it stuck to one hand. I hooked my sleeve under the handle of it, 
peeling my chilled fingers away, and then took it back to the trough. I scooped out some more in case we needed it, but it froze instantly, forming a vertical crust of ice around the bucket where I dipped it through the surface. I set it down empty instead. She was talking again now, but I couldn't make out words, just a stream of inflections and glottal stops. She sounded like a flock of worried birds. I reached out to her. I felt like a toddler. My tiny hand rested on her enormous, bonily thin shoulder. She was as cold as the bucket had been. I wondered how I could help her deliver her baby without freezing to death. Maybe I would freeze to death. I realized the speaking had stopped and looked up. Her eye was definitely bluer now, like a winter sky instead of a frozen pond. It went back from my hand to my face and back. I couldn't tell if I'd pleased or offended her. She closed her eye again and tipped her head back as if exhausted. Maybe she needed a pick-me-up, I thought. What did they tell my sisters? One of them had to have a drip and all sorts of drugs and things. She was only allowed the odd ice chip to suck. But the other had had a very straightforward time at the birth centre. What had she had? The answer shot through me like electricity. I'll be right back. I said to the monster in the straw. Then I ran to the little store at the end of the byre, where it met the house. Inside there, three quarters of the way up the wall, was a little door. It was about eight inches square and boarded up on the other side. It wasn't mentioned on the schedule, but we decided it was a way to get from the byre to the kitchen without having to go outside. Ben! I yanked the tiny door open and began to hammer and push on the back of the boards covering the kitchen side. Ben's voice was muted but close. Ben, the little hatch. Can you pull the board off your side? I called, casting a look back as the moaning began again. There was a scuffling, a few knocks and then a splintering wrench. Then my husband's sweet face. Oh, Ben. I was so happy to see him. Tears prickled in my eyes. Maya, what's happening? What has it done to you? He was distraught. Nothing. Ben, it's okay. She's having a baby. I put my hand through the hole and Ben held it. His felt boiling to my chilled fingers. A what? There was disbelief in Ben's voice. I know, I said. That's the noise. It's the labour pains. Listen, I've got no time. Can you get that pouch of bone broth and heat it up? She's floundering. I think she needs something to give her some energy. God love Ben. He went straight to it, grabbing a pot, lighting the hob. It'll take a minute. Come back in a bit and I'll have it ready, he said. He's back to me now. I went back to her, and a few sessions of roaring and thunder later, I went to check and found Ben had left an earthenware vase full of steaming bone broth and a flask of full, hot, sweet tea standing ready on the ledge. She sniffed the broth suspiciously, then dipped a withered finger in it, licked. Then she guzzled the vase down as she had the hot water. She smacked her lips when it was gone, nodding appreciatively at me. I took the vase, rinsed it in the half-frozen trough, and poured in a little sweet tea. She tried a sip of that but pulled a face, handed it back. I drank it myself. From just the touch of her lips it was stone cold. But I was so grateful for the sugar I didn't care. 
The fear had wrung me out hard, leaving me limp and shaky. The roaring went on throughout the night. Each time I felt the room grow colder, and I grew colder with it. I wondered if the tiles were being stripped from the roof by the tempest that seemed to come raging with each of her pains. My toes went numb, then my feet. Soon I couldn't feel anything much below the knee. My knees themselves were aching knots of cold pain. My fingers tingled and faded away too. It was most odd. I could see them, watch them doing what I told them to, but I could feel nothing. I shivered and shivered. Not just chattering teeth, but bone deep, shaking right through my middle. Every time the roaring came, the huge eye closed, and every time it opened, the blue of it was deeper and brighter. Mostly, I didn't know what to do with myself. I was no midwife. It was hard to even stand beside her when she was roaring. It was the sort of loud that made your bones cringe and your organs tremble. Though towards dawn I was shivering so hard it was hard to know if it was the roaring or the cold. I had begun to feel sleepy by then and wondered if I'd pass out and die before it was over. Gradually the roaring began to strangle into grunts and I woke up a bit then as I realised the baby, assuming it was going to be a baby, must be getting close. Sure enough, on the next pane, instead of closing the huge eye and roaring, the thing made a swipe at me. Her gigantic hand enveloped my whole forearm. Even though I was as cold as I'd ever been in my life, I could still feel the ice of her flesh burning into mine. Her eye, now the rich, pure blue of the heart of a glacier, shot through with neon flashes, was fixed on me. There was desperation in it. Good she gasped. I didn't know the word, but a plea for help has the same tone in my language. I took her giant, freezing hands in my small, numb ones and leaned my full weight back, pulling her up onto her knees. Her staff rolled from her thighs as I heaved, landing in the straw which froze solid where it touched. It was like rolling a stuck cow pulling her upright. She wasn't just heavy, but dense like a boulder. She lifted a foot and planted it flat so that she knelt on one knee in front of me. Her eye was brighter than ever and her back seemed less hunched. She nodded, then let go of me and moved the staff away from us. Another pain gripped her and this time she was silent, but the roar of the weather was almost as loud as she had been. There was a gush of something, but when I looked down, I saw the liquid had turned to ice already coating the straw underneath her. I knelt myself then and with stiff arms pushed fresh straw under her. Whatever was coming couldn't have a frozen puddle as its first greeting. I was scared to really look at what was happening under her skirts, but she lifted them herself so I had no choice. There was a head. The back of a head. Blood smeared and sparkling frosty wet. It hung there, crown facing the straw. It was huge too, like the head of a five-year-old. As I watched it, the head slowly rotated towards a giant thigh so that I could see its face in profile. It was just a baby's face, large but otherwise normal looking. It oozed slightly towards me as the further away shoulder came free. There was a sort of 
juddering slither then, and I instinctively dived forwards to stop it falling unchecked. I caught it by its big shoulders and guided it, as gently as I could, with cold, weakened arms into the straw. It opened its eyes and landed and stared right up into mine. It had two eyes, a normal face. The eyes were a deep, shining emerald green. Upside down, it considered me silently for a moment. Then, the face scrunched and the mouth opened and it let out a newborn howl. I scanned its body. It's a girl, I said, smiling up at the giant woman. The eye was turquoise now, shading to teal at the outer ring. She was smiling back. Her teeth were the colour of rusted iron. There was a wet noise and then the afterbirth slipped onto the straw. The woman took a knife from her cloak and cut the cord by the child's belly. Then she lifted the baby and tucked it neatly inside her shirt. She sat back on her heels and then lay fully back into the straw. There were soft suckling noises as the baby nursed. It had begun to feel very detached. I'd stopped shivering and my skin had started to feel prickly and hot. I felt the urge to take my clothes off but I was too tired to move. I drifted into a daze for a while and came back to myself as the giant creature who was standing now, the baby wrapped tight against her chest under her blouse and cloak, was pulling me to my feet. I couldn't feel my legs but somehow they held me. She took her staff and waved it at the door, which slid open, a trail of ice ferns blooming across the surface. Dunya! She called out. I realized she was shouting for Ben. Ben. I mumbled, my mouth clumsy with cold. My Dunya is called Ben. Ben! He must have been waiting by the front door. I heard it slam so fast. I looked up into the teal eye. I wondered if it would soon turn the same green as the baby's. I heard Ben's running footsteps and tried to turn towards them, but stumbled and grabbed her wrist to steady myself. I could no longer feel the cold of her. We were the same now. Holding her arm, I looked up into her face again. Kayak. She nodded slowly, then raised her other hand and pressed her thumb onto my forehead, just at my hairline. Maya? She said, and I nodded too. Then, Ben was there, wrapping his arms around me, holding me up. I let go of the huge wrist and the figure now walking upright and easy like a much younger woman strode out through the doorway into the hazy light of the coming dawn. Ben half dragged, half carried me after her, keen to get me to the house and warmth of the fire. When we got outside, she was in the field already, marching east. As I watched, the edge of the sun came up above the horizon, and the first fingers of light reached up the valley towards her. As they fell across her, she seemed to melt away, to evaporate. I never saw her disappear. She was just there one moment, and the next, she was gone. I slept all day and all the next night on the sofa in front of the fire covered in hot water bottles and blankets, 
Sometimes I was aware of voices, but I couldn't seem to wake him properly to see who was there. Later, Ben told me half the neighborhood had come. First, Sandy returning our surviving stock, which had run all the way to his dairy barn and broken in there to get out of the weather. Then Hillary, who was just nosy, I think. Then a steady trickle of people Hillary had gossiped to. They bought gifts, advice, food to warm me up. Some person unknown cleared up the chunks of calf from the yard. It was a very human situation. Everyone will tell you they don't believe in ghosts, and then a few drinks later they will tell you their own ghostly encounter story. And it seemed people who laugh at folklore and fairy stories in the light of day were nonetheless ready to bring their family's special restorative soup and clear up ice-shattered animals when they hear that you've encountered an ancient goddess. I only ever really told Ben the full story of that night. Even that felt like I was giving something irreplaceably precious away. It was the coldest and most terrifying night of my life and also the most fascinating and astonishing. When I'd finished the telling, I asked if he could really believe it, and he fetched me a hand mirror, so I could see that where the gigantic thumb had pressed onto my head, the hair had turned bright white. The colour hasn't come back. I don't mind. The locals all know where I got it, and some still stare. I don't talk about it much. But I am looking forward to having my own babies. To them asking about it. To future longest nights when I can gather them by the fire and tell them the story of the time when I froze half to death in the byre as I helped the Witch of Winter deliver her child. The goddess of summer to come, safe into the world. This story was written by Beck Stranger and narrated by Missley Rose Neville. For more stories that haunt, as well as a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, you can join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. You can follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com, and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. This has been a Please Leave Media production.